0: You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Uh, We are excited to be able to join you and to... um, share with you um, our conversation into God's Word. Uh, We are two friends who like to get together and talk theology and talk the Word of God. And we envision that you are listening and joining in the conversation and uh, perhaps uh, sitting with a coffee or hot chocolate as my friend likes to drink. And uh, we have been discussing the, uh, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament and discussing the uh, lives uh, of, of the characters in the story and uh, looking into the insight of, of God's actions in their lives. And we have been uh, talking uh, about the, the trials that the characters in the story have faced and are facing. And uh, we are going to continue with that in uh, our first uh, chapter, chapter one, and talk about um, um, the, the presence of God and the loyalty of God and the actions of God, and uh, hopefully um, glean some insight into our lives uh, and try to interpret that. So, uh, we have been discussing um, um, questions as far as where God is when 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 things kind of fall apart, you know. And uh, we have seen in this book uh, three women, uh, namely Naomi, who is the mother-in-law. Uh, Ruth uh, who's her daughter-in-law and Orpa, who's another daughter-in-law and the three of them have lost their loved ones They've lost their husbands Naomi lost her two sons and her husband and each Ruth uh, Ruth and Orpah each lost her husband and so you have three women uh, Who are faced with dire circumstances and having to decide what to do at one point in the first chapter there is some good news that comes on the scene. That's in verse 6. I'm going to begin uh, reading from there uh, before we begin our discussion. In verse 6, it says And then she arose with her daughters in law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters in law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, and if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister in law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister in law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, nor turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was not, that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Reverend,
1: (laughs) shine some insight into this as we begin our discussion today. You know, John, it's important to remember sometimes as we are engaged in the text, we can turn pages very quickly. Um, however, our, our immediate turning of the page is not equivalent to the living out of the story. Um, again, I think it's important to point out that uh, verse 4, the latter section thereof, uh, records that verses 1 through 4 are were cumulatively 10 years, Right. this conversation of the return is that transitory scenario and or period that is not, in fact, arguing for years. The entirety of the book may be summated in a period of 12 years, 10 of which are taken up in verses 1 through 4, and what we're seeing now is simply uh, a conversation the nature of that conversation has as its focal point this Hebrew term, shuv. Return. To return. Right. And uh, in the employment of this turn, the question is, um, shall I return to the house of bread, in so much as in verse number six, I am has pechad, he has visited his people with a view to his positive visitation to supply them with grain uh, with barley uh, from uh, um, uh, in the earlier uh, section and with wheat in the latter section right And so with that said, there is this concept of returning to the land of promise. Uh, But then there is the question of the young ladies, will they return to the land of Moab, uh, which is called literally the seed of the father from the Genesis 19 scenario? Or will they in fact decide to return with Naomi, to her homeland, which would then place them in a foreign land 50 miles away so, from their homeland. So, so,
0: so they're at a, at, a, at a turning point, so to speak. Correct. Because you have, they've gone through their tra- tragic time. Obviously they've been in Moab for 10 years. She lost her husband, or, uh, Naomi did. Um, Ruth and, and Orpah lost their their husbands, Naomi's sons. So this is after much tragedy, a lot of um, uh, difficult times for them. And the question is, Will they re- who's gonna return to who? Because you have Ruth, or Naomi rather, returning back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, to Judah. And the same word is, will they return back to Moab? Or will they return back to their ways, their people, their gods? And so you have, the same term used in two different ways. One is to turn, return back to where you came from, i.e., uh, Naomi. The other one is to turn away from where you came from to turn towards somewhere new, and that's in Ruth's case. And that's the question of of where they're going to turn. But what's interesting is in this section, you have you have the beginning of of the good news and the Lord visiting His people and giving them bread, and then at the end of chapter one, the barley harvest. Begun, which is probably around April, I think it is, when barley harvest began. In other words, you have two good things that bracket this section here, and the question is, how are things going to go forth? Naomi has in her mind what she's going to do to go back, but she's not unaware. She's not aware yet of how this is going to play out with her her daughters in law. At some point in the journey, she obviously they all left Moab and not, were on their journey. At some point, they she stops and tries to convince them to turn back. And that's a crucial point, the fact, I don't think she realizes the crucial uh, aspect of of her
1: conversation with with, uh, her daughters-in-law and what this all means. Because earlier in verse number nine, uh, she kisses both of them and they lift up their voices and weep. Right, Both um, daughters-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and the mother-in-law, and and by the way, and we'll run into this later on in the text, but this is not the subtle tearing up of uh, um, uh, women in modernity. This is a family now, right? This is a clan, and for the ancient Near Eastern uh, individual, clan, family, represented everything. Therein lay your protection, right? Therein lay your solidarity, therein lay your identification, therein laid your um, uh, lay your uh, provision. I mean, there there's a great deal uh, of association that is very real, that is resulting, if you will allow, in a and an anticipated codependency that's expected in the community. There's not this individualism as you see in modern Americanism today, but there is this trust, this reliance, this this dynamic, organic nature that has now taken place within the framework of the understanding of the ancient Near Eastern family or clan. Now,
0: but isn't she, now, as knowing how an important family is, Isn't Naomi, in one sense, trying to encourage that by telling them to go back because she's saying, "Go back to your mother's house," which is basically a hint: "Hey, go back, and you will be available to to marry again." Um, To encourage that, she's encouraging them to go on and get new families. That to stay with me, she's saying, is a dead end. I can't promise you, children. I'm too old, and if I got pregnant
1: today, would you wait? She says. And therein lies the challenge, because. The only reason that one would stay with this family, not just through the good times for the last 10 years, right? right? Right. Which have also been difficult times. But now that the husbands are gone, the question, what will keep you with the family? Right. What will keep you committed to the family? And. You are absolutely correct that the idiomatic phraseology, go back to your mother's house versus your father's house, would suggest going back to a place and a state of marriageability and availability for a familial unit being reformed and a reidentification, as it were. But in this suggestion of re-identification, there is an awareness of a break. There is a pain, thus the text statement, they are weeping. And and this weeping would be very verbose, it would be loud, it it would be um, demonstrative. Not demonstrative for the sake of demonstration, but because there is an authentic pain that is being felt at the possibility of a new family being formed, but an old family. That for the last ten years so, have come together and supposedly congealed. right? And so, and
0: and some people look at at this conversation, and of course, at first they all weep and they say, "Oh, we're going to stay with you." You know, we'll return. They say in verse ten, right? But then, of course, who really stays? But Ruth, who Ruth, Ruth is going to just going to stay? Orpah is going to go back and say, "Well, Orpah, she really didn't believe." Well, think about it. In all practical sense, she doesn't have to stay, and and in all you know practical purposes. Naomi doesn't have anything to offer her and she's not committed or not bind or bound to Naomi any longer. She's free to go back. Now she expresses, you know, okay, first, you know, uh, well-meaning intentions to stay. But at that time, if you're a widow and especially if you're young, if you're a widow, you are dependent on, on your children if you had any children. Well, at this point, it seems like neither Orpah nor Ruth have any children. Um, and so you are destitute. You were in a very difficult place. And if you were from Moab, and to go back to a new country, Israel, or that would be sort of, uh, you're not really friends uh, in friendly terms uh, uh, often, um, that would be a difficult challenge. So for, for practical purposes, Orpah has made the good decision in that sense. Ruth is making a decision that is out of the ordinary, and I think this is what's going to be exemplified in this book. Um, she, she we, the writer, is not fault Orpah for her decision; it doesn't it doesn't address that, but it's going to address and highlight the uniqueness of Ruth's decision to stay when she is staying when there's no guarantee of anything going to come her way. There's no guarantee of future husband or or family or anything, and she even says. I'm gonna go where you go, and I'm gonna and and she doesn't say I'll go until I find a husband, then I'll leave. She goes, I'm gonna die where you die. If you die somewhere, I'm gonna stay there and be buried with you. That now her commitment to, to uh, Naomi, is it goes uh, over and and beyond what you would expect. Maybe she's thinking uh, some people would be thinking, well, I'll just go back until I can find a, married, uh, find a man, not a married man, of course, to, to uh, find a man to marry, and then I'll go on and make a new family. But in Ruth's mind, her commitment to Naomi is till, until, until death.
1: I, I think therein, John, however, there, there is something of the character of the two ladies revealed. Right. Right? Because if truth be told, according to Torah, according to Israeli law, and in fact, not simply within the confines of Israeli law, but within the framework of many cultures. And remember now, the Moabites and the Ammonites are sister right. tribes, right. relatives connected right. uh, to the Israelites. And according to Deuteronomy, they were not given, the Israelites were not given right to attack right. the Moabites or the Ammonites. Right. Because God, I am, had allotted territory to them. Right. But within this framework, uh, it was understood within the culture that no matter how difficult it had become, and and I certainly appreciate and defer to your statement as being accurate that uh, 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 there is an opportunity being given here. However, in the face of that opportunity, no matter how difficult things had become, there was an anticipation that that husband needed to have a continuing name, that that family should have a continued heritage, right. and that the commitment, the familial, fidelitous See, but, commitment, but, okay. was not over even okay. at the death of the so, spouse. But let
0: me, and just, to, and that's correct. That's within the the, the Jewish, Israelite custom and law. But you're talking about Ruth. Yes, she is not an Israelite. She's not in covenant with Yahweh the way the Israelites are and yet she is committed to do what the Israelites were supposed to be doing and in, in carrying on the name so her actions you know Orpah's actions are to be expected here Ruth is doing something or you know we don't we, we know the end of the story right now but yes. in the midst of this we don't know what her intentions are okay we don't know if her intentions are eventually to get married to carry on the name of her, her dead husband which was part of the the custom so at this point, we don't know. But what we do know is there's something exemplary about her that is unexpected that you wouldn't expect from, from a Mo- somebody from Moab. You would expect that from the Israelites. And yet, in this time period, in the, book of, in the time period of the Judges, whereas the book of Judges ends with there was no king of Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here is this glimmer of bright, light hope through Ruth, the most unexpected person, you might say, the, the, the Good Samaritan, so to speak, of the story that you would not expect. And what she does, in one sense, reveals to, will reveal to Naomi and to other people uh, in the story, something of God. And so there's, there's something that's going on within the story that, that Ruth is demonstrating and exemplifying
1: a character of God in her loyalty, which you don't expect. There is this... There's this aspect within the framework of the text that would suggest earlier, as I suggested um, in the earlier verses, um, there is uh, weeping. Uh, Naomi expresses a prayer that uh, I am would grant unto them a place of rest right. and security. Right. Um, as the text progresses, there is a a communal weeping by each of these women. When you come to verse number 14, the text says, and they lifted up their voices and wept again. Mm -hmm. And so now this is this, after a refusal, after an initial refusal by both daughters-in-law, there is now this weeping, but after weeping, one of them divulges their familial tie and leaves, and the other divulges her familial tie, which is going to prove to be so much more, and stays. And, and I think that that's but, consequential. And what is interesting is that both
0: express verbally their intentions to stay and to return with her, basically. But only one does. And it's not until that is put to the test, so to speak. Like Naomi does not know what she's going to get out of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth is going to demonstrate something that is not won't be revealed until it has to be revealed, and here's the, here's the in verse fourteen, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, like I I kissed her goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. It's not until this verse that you see okay, what's really going, who is really going to follow through with her commitment, and why, and the fact that she is going to now indicate, her. not only she st- stated no, we're going to go back with you she's now not going to leave, even though Naomi's still going to press her further in the following verse, she's going to say no, go back and even at that pressing, Ruth is still going to show herself committed to her in unimaginable ways. In fact, she has no idea the, the way the rest of the story is going to play out of her commitment to Naomi. But each step along the way, you find out she's she is definitely in, uh, in into this. And and, and just to bring to a practical sense, sometimes you don't know what's in a person until you have to bump them, you know, so to speak, you know, until it. until um, when somebody says, "I'll be there for you." And of course, the, the bottom falls out and you find out, okay, where that everybody go? Who's, who's really there with me? You don't find that out. You don't, that, that's not revealed until the testing part comes, until it has to be tested. And then the actions speak louder than words.
1: I'd like to, John, just think with you. and, and yes, let's, this, let's think together. Let, let's, let's cogitate <laughs> together. Right? I, I'd like to think with you and lift this from the period of the judge's to a transitional testament theological concept. Oh, that's transitional testament, the Gospels. I know that. Right. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Jesus says this when speaking of discipleship in Luke fourteen, <coughs> verse twenty five. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, "If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father." and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with ten thousand to encounter the one coming against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Mm. The, the idea is that discipleship is costly when things are hopeless, apparently. right? right. Or when things are extraordinarily extremely sacrificial. I want to lift this to a theological discussion for a moment because, John, as you and I sit here, you and I both know that there are individuals who have entered the parameters of Christendom On a false premise, on the back of a false premise, that things will always go well, that there'll always be a chicken in the pot, uh, there will always be food in the cupboard, there will always be a car in the drive, there will always be a lavish home, and yet, in lieu of the absence of many of those things... Yes, even things that could appear to one to be more necessative than a fine car right. or, or the bare necessities, quote unquote, of life. They found themselves walking with the Lord and stripped bare concerning the things that are desirable in life. And, and what happens when they are at that place where things appear hopeless and there's the opportunity to turn— to an old life, to turn to what appears to be a new life opportunity or a new outlook that does not involve strict, direct relationship with I am or with the person of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that when Christ calls people to
0: follow him and to take up their cross, they've already, and those who have, have already said goodbye to those things in other words, they're already been stripped. Since when has the cross gone from being the the symbol of your execution to being a symbol of of decoration around your neck? The, that the 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 idea that we can have Christ without the cross is is not,
1: ludicrous. Is not Christian because to have Christ is to have the cross. John, in the ancient Near Eastern text. Um, we have more information about what a crucifixion was descriptively in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than all of the collected annals of information, including Mm -hmm. Josephus, in any other text outside of the Bible. It is not that there is not a historical or archaeological admission of the existence or the reality or the validity of the cross, but the cross was such an instrument of horror and humiliation that most authors simply referred to it they did not describe it in detail. right? So, in fact, this is one of the areas where not only should we speak of the accuracy of the Bible, but we should appreciate as historians the Bible's information and content because were it not for these four gospels, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right. we would veritably know nothing about the nature of a crucifixion. The crucifixion was of such a nature that they would literally only put you about a foot off of the ground. Right. You were reminded torturously, might I suggest, you're just one foot from freedom. And you were also put on the very on the main highway so that you can be exposed in public to shame. Yes, it wasn't your, for immediate death. It was no. for embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, you were often naked on the cross. Uh, 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 you on the cross were in a scenario that encouraged suffering and not immediate death. In fact, because the cross was so painful. Uh, it had a word that was in Excruciating. Invented. That's correct. That's Echt, right. cruciation. Yes. Ech, the preposition out of. Right. Literally a pain that is so severe that it can only be describing, described as coming out of the cross. Right. Jesus speaks of the nature of what it looks like to follow him right. as summated in taking up an instrument of humiliation, suffering, embarrassment, and pain, and looking at what is apparently hopeless, not your 14 karat gold trinket about your neck, yeah. not the, the the trinket that decores the steeple on the church down the road, uh, not the wooden depiction that we drag across the aisle on Passion Week, but that thing that in the first century would have caused people to cringe and be taken back and gasp and right. awe, and right. what did he say? Jesus says discipleship's commitment at its crux is comparable to taking up life through the instrument of what you know will kill you. In other words, it's not a question of whether or not you're in this for life till death. You're going to die. Right. That's the level of commitment. And you have, and obviously speaking of the commitment of
0: the disciple and following Christ, and the the picture of that in Ruth and clinging to Naomi, of knowing that though she has the opportunity to take the easy way out and going back to Moab, she decides to do this knowing without any guarantees of anything. There's no guarantee that she'll meet a husband. There's no guarantee that she'll even have food, though she does get food and God provides in that way. But she clings to her in a way that that, that says, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. I'm going to to sacrifice my own future, my own hopes and dreams for you. And I can't imagine... um, that kind of loyalty that, was, that would have been um, obviously rare in, in some instances in this, in this time period. I can't imi- imagine what may be going through Naomi's mind as she's sharing this and through people who've seen this. In fact, she, her testimony becomes well known when she goes back to Bethlehem. People see that. And in the parallel with, with uh, the cross and with the discipleship, oftentimes what's advertised in following Jesus is the verbal aspect come and make a verbal de- dedication or declaration of faith in Christ. But what's missing is the discipleship aspect, the following. It's one thing to say, I will follow you, God. I will follow you. But then when you have to put actions to those words, oftentimes it, it is something that's not carried out. Because for some reason, we think we want uh, to follow Christ, to benefit ourselves, to to make our lives feel better. And there's no guarantee in that. In fact, in the story here in Ruth, we're dropped right in the middle of things. They've lost a lot. They're right in the middle of, of, of a period of, of mourning and tragedy and everything else. There's no guarantee that when you follow Christ, that life will be rosy. In fact, the, Jesus says that the world's going to hate you. Why are we spending so much time trying to become friends with the world when it, Jesus says the world's going to hate you? Why are we trying to uh, spend so much time not offending people with the message of the cross?
1: Jesus says it's going to offend people. John, the only way that a person can make this kind of decision is pray God they find the worth and the loveliness of the Savior greater than the apparent hopelessness of what is involved in our journey at times. (coughs) And the apparent splendor, the, applen- uh, the app- apparent lure mm-hmm. and attractability of what it looks like to live without the lover of
0: our soul. It, isn't it interesting that, there, that Ruth, the one who is from Moab, Moab, a child of Lot, or Lot, as you like to say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read the book of Job or the book of Job or whatever. You know. <laughs> But Ruth, a descendant of Lot, Lot who was faced with, a very, uh, with, with some temptation, one in uh, Genesis 13, I believe it is, where he is offered by Abraham, his uncle, a chance to pick what side of uh, where he wants to dwell with all of his belongings and cattle and sheep and everything else. And Lot decides to pick the fertile green valley that he sees because it appeals to his eyes. It says, this looks good to me. Uncle Abraham, I'm so sorry you're getting the, the, the bad choosing here, but I'm going to pick, thank you very much, I'm going to pick the Fertile
1: Valley. Literally, Abram has just said to him, if you to the left, I to the right. If you to the right, I to the left. He has just stated that and he has just made available to him the land of promise, the land, by the way, which God has promised to Abraham. Lot looks at this land, yes, and he compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. Please know that at this time it looks like the Garden of Eden. Right. He doesn't, gonna, he
0: doesn't know what's he doesn't know what's going to be Sodom and Gomorrah that we know of, you know, destroyed and everything else.
1: But he's an opportunist. Right. He looks at this plush land and he says, "That looks far more inviting to me, right, than what God is offering."
0: And isn't it interesting the parallel with, with Lot? And his decision he makes, Ruth, she could have gone back and gone the easy way out. She probably would have, she was young still. She could have gone back to Moab and easily have found a husband. She could have gone back to her mother's house and easily have found a husband. But she's also faced with the same same decision. She des- decides not to go for the easy way out, not to go for the green, fertile, easy way uh, valley, and it cost her the opportunity. In one sense, she does not go back to that, but what she goes to is far uh, worth far, far more. In other words, you have to ask the question: Why is she doing this? Because what she what she will get from her people and her god, Kemosh, that was the gods of uh, one of the gods of uh, Moab, uh, whom you would sacrifice your children to, very horrific, whose name means destroyer. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I wonder, um, you know. Um, in her, in, she's given a choice to go back to that. What she knows she'll get out of uh, out of that uh, of her people and her gods fails in comparison to what she anticipates of getting from the God Yahweh. In other words, she's already, in one sense, demonstrated her decision to follow this God of Israel, who, though he has not prevented them from going through tragic trot times. She has some trust in this, this God. In other words, she, in fact, calls on his name that says, may Yahweh do yes. to me, may He, you know, kill me if I don't, if I don't follow you wherever you go. In other words, her commitment to Yahweh is very significant here that she would choose him over what is well known in the green fertile valleys uh, that way her, her uncle did her
1: uh, grandparents did. The way her ancestors ancestor did. Ancestors right? did, yeah. It, this is why I think it's so important, John, to remind myself.
0: By the way, I'm out of coffee,
1: so I'm... I'm <laughs>
0: I still know. have hot chocolate. You have hot chocolate. chocolate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's so important to remind myself. There will be opportunities, there will be experiences in life which will present themselves and will result in weeping, Hmm. brokenheartedness. And in lieu of that, I will be tempted to look and say, here's an opportunity. Pray God that he give me the strength, the wherewithal, to wipe the tears and make the determination to walk with God through the pain to the joy, rather than compromising and thinking of life outside of I am with opportunity as a valid opportunity over and above, suggesting that no matter what you give me or grant me here and now, the worth is not in what comes from your hand as much as in who you are mm. to me. Now, what's interesting about, about what you just said,
0: too, is and this leads into um, the one of the main ideas of the story, one of the main um, principles or topics is this this loyalty, this loving kindness. The the Hebrew word hased, hased, yes, yeah, very good pronunciation there. <laughs> that is de- that is described. In fact, uh, Ruth or Naomi rather says, "May the Lord deal kindly with you." Back in verse eight, that's the word hased. Ruth will then begin to demonstrate what what has said means, and what's interesting in this story, you have on the lips of the people they say, "May the Lord be loving kind." May the Lord bless you. Okay, there's throughout there's this uh, yes. this this uh, this wish, this um, Joseph, I guess you'd say it in Hebrew expression, and what you have is you have not Ruth being loyal, showing loving kindness to Naomi. Boaz is going to show loving kindness to Ruth and to Naomi and all of them are going to show loving kindness and loyalty to Ruth's husband. And in the midst of all this, God's going to be the one who's showing loving kindness to, to all of them as well, especially Naomi and turning the life, her, her life around. And so you have this idea of, of loving kindness and loyalty that is, that is very, a really rich concept. Ruth demonstrates that she demonstrates her loyalty that she decides to go with her without a guarantee of having anything in return. In fact, the idea of the word means that, and one idea, one concept of the word is that you would show favor or kindness or help to someone who is not able to help themselves, to someone who is not able to pay you back. Who cannot reciprocate. Who cannot reciprocate. Now think about that. How much of life... How much of our decision how many of our decisions, let's say a friendship, how many friendships that we that we know of where it's one person hmm. investing all the time into the friendship and it's not reciprocated? You have and this happens a lot, where where uh, you invest a lot of time and energy. You're the one who's calling them up. You're the one that's is wishing them, you know, um, happy birthday, you're the one who's encouraging them through hard work. you're the one who drives you know to the other side of the world for them to to do whatever it takes to to be there for them to help them out but it's never reciprocated. Ruth is the one who who is who is um doing this for Naomi. Naomi cannot pay her back. There's nothing she can do and yet still Ruth is willing to go that extra mile knowing that she won't receive in return. And how many of our of how we approach friendships, how we approach life is hmm if I do this for so-and-so, what's in it for me? And oftentimes that's how we think.
1: You know, John, her chesed. Her, chesed. Her loyal. Everyone say it together with us, chesed. <laughs> her loyal love. Her kindness, as it were. Yes. A lot of people are impressed with um, uh, the words of, of of Ruth later on. Yes. I'm very impressed with what Leads into this, right? To to formulate this this concept or this depiction, this manifestation of her chesed in in chapter one, verse number fourteen, as Orpah is depicted as leaving, Ruth is depicted as clinging. Mm. Uh, Now, this is that leaving, cleave. It actually is. It actually is. This term dever is 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 rather important. You see this particular word uh, in the Hebrew text, or devec. I should say devec. This term devec is depicted in various areas in the Hebrew text. Negatively, uh, this particular term. Is seen in Job 19, verse number 20, when Job, uh, in illness, says that his bone is clinging to his skin, or his skin is devek, clinging to his bones, literally. It's also seen uh, uh, negatively in Deuteronomy 28 in the Deuteronomic blessings and curses, but particularly in the curses, when God says, if you forego me as my covenant community, as my amshagula, as my treasured people, I will then cause pestilence or disease to irrevocably cling to you. In other words, such an illness will attach itself to you that you will not be able to separate from it. Positively, then, conversely, this same word is seen in Deuteronomy—not uh, Deuteronomy, but Genesis right. uh, two twenty-four—in right. the um, in the articulation uh, and 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 uh, statement, the summative statement or commentary of Moses as he's speaking of the nature of marriage uh, after recording the marriage of. Adam and Hava, or Adam and Eve, and and what he says is, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and devek, shall cling, and the idea is a a permanence. What really impresses me, however, is, in the Deuteronomic text again, I am says that the people of God were to love him, and to serve him, and to cling, devek, to him. John, even though we have now going, gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Right. This is taking place during the period of Judges. So the people of God have the covenant of God. They have Torah proper. They have not only the Ten Commandments, but they have the 613 Commandments. They know the loving relationalism of their documents that I am has given to them and they know that the criteria the expectancy is one of covenant relationship this foreigner exhibits that stronger than the covenant people of God have hitherto
0: i mean what does that, that what does that say about 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 ruth i mean if if she is clinging can i say it right clinging to Naomi, but she's clung to Yahweh, her God. Yes, because I, I'm convinced that the only re- way here's the only way she can cling to Naomi is if she's clung to God. Because if you cling to God, you'll exemplify God. What's interesting is as you talk about the terms being used in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve, you know, a man shall leave and you know his father's house and cling to his cleave to his wife. It's also used, in a negative sense, it's with Solomon. Correct. It talks about how Solomon clung to his wives. And the result was his heart was not wholly devoted to his God. In other Correct. words, his, the, the gods of his wives, many wives he had. I can't imagine the... Uh, the date nights he had uh, you know have a, a schedule you know persons uh, appointments for his wives you know date 700 nights. wives 300 concubines i can't ima- i can't imagine you know the the pressure that would have been on having so many wives but the the point is the fact that he clung to his wives and he, and he clung to the gods of his wives he then exemplified and demonstrated the gods of these uh, the, the characters of these gods In other words What you cling to Will affect what you, how you are And what you do And what you exemplify What you exemplify The fact that Ruth is doing this is, is in my mind Proof that she has already claimed God To be her God Now what's interesting is this She has gone through years of Well Hardships and, and tragedy With the loss of her husband And the loss of her father-in-law something though, there's something about the way Naomi and her family was back in Moab that still exemplified Yahweh to them. Though it's bitter for them, it's bitter for Naomi, even in the tragedies, Ruth has observed, something was different about this family.
1: And she still sees I am so attractive. Yes. Amidst the tragedy, amidst the loss, that she would prefer to cling to him. Yes. And his people as particularly right now represented for her purposes in Naomi, a woman who is full of sorrow at this juncture, she sees that far more alluring than the lure of Chemosh and Moab.
0: So the question then, because because if if she is loyal, if we're going to say loving kindness or loyalty, it's all, the term hesed has so many aspects wrapped up into it. All, you know, is God's goodness, is loving kindness, is... His, his loyalty, his faithfulness, his faithfulness. It's all wrapped up in this term. We can't use one English word to describe it. But if she's demonstrating this, and this is the beginning of this in chapter one, verse 14, you know, and then she follows by saying, hey, don't tell me to go away because I'm going to go where you go. I will go, you know, and, and then, the, and then the, your people will be my people. And what we say at oftentimes at, at weddings, you know, um, it, she begins that commitment and still, she is going to fulfill that commitment. But what is the what is the 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 spark that initiates that? But something about Yahweh, this God who has shown Himself faithful. Okay, this, they've still gone through difficult times, but there's something significant about the fact that Yahweh is it's still their God, and though they they go, the road has been bumpy, she's not angry at God, which is interesting because you'll see Naomi is kind of bitter at God or angry at God, whereas Ruth
1: is not. And they've gone through the same experiences. In verse 15, John, what you have is, despite her action to cling, and that's what's impressive to me. Because the poetic words later on, while they are phenomenal, yes. they are birthed out of this clinging in verse number 14. Right. Uh, in verse 15 then, Naomi gives it another shot. She says, "Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law and 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 this is the effect, the efficacy of these words on Ruth, according to verse 16. She says, "Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you when she says that literally her statement of urging is a Hebrew word that would argue it feels like blows. Mm. It's it's hurting me. Your very words for me to go away from you, your very words for me to go away from I am is like being hit over and over and over again. This is a resolve in her soul, not just in her action, but a resolve in her soul that's causing her to hear anything that is contradistinctive to following I am and fidelitous behavior toward Naomi as painful. But isn't this... In, OK, in one sense, this is
0: this is unique, her not only expression, but her, her decision to do this. How many of us get mad at God for what we perceive as God's absence, or what we perceive as God being against us? Or God not answering prayer, or God moving too slow, or things or circumstances in our life not going the way we would envision them to go. Here's the contrast Ruth is following Yahweh, not knowing what the future holds, and yet she still follows Yahweh. She doesn't follow Yahweh and say, I will follow you if, here's my list of requirements, God, I will go you, I will be a faithful friend to Naomi if. You know, it's interesting as we have, we often approach friendships and, and, and commitments the way we approach investments. Is there a return on my investment? How does it benefit me? And here's Ruth, who's demonstrating a commitment to God, to follow God, to follow Naomi and her God without guarantees of anything good happening. Knowing that she knows that this is, this is the God of the universe Here's Naomi trying to trying to have Ruth to go back to her gods when she has the most, she says, I have nothing to offer you. I have no children to offer you, but she has her God to offer and she has already demonstrated that God and she does not realize that though she's trying to send Ruth away, she does not realize the gem that God has placed in her midst, i.e. Ruth, to demonstrate that
1: faithfulness that she would have. Not seen. I, I think that's important, John, because what most individuals would not realize is if you were to look at these words, these poetic words that she speaks now, they, they should be compared to Genesis chapter number 12, verses 1 through 3. Right. Avram, Abram. Uh, what is God's word to him? Abram. He speaks to him, and he says, leave your...
0: Actually, relatives. I think you can be a, the voice of God in some, you know, like, <laughs> Abraham, Abraham. Yes, or Samuel, Samuel. You have a good voice for that. Thank you. That's, okay. That's very <laughs> I, I interrupt your thought. I didn't mean to. It just, it just hit me as you said, Abraham. I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty good. Maybe that's the way God sounds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's
1: my impression of <laughs> I am, right? He says leave your relatives, your father's house, your country, and go to a land that I will show you. And I describe this summatively now and he says, and I will will bless you and I'll make your name great. He anticipates not only a sacrifice in leaving, but I am promises blessings to ensue as a result of his obedience.
0: But a whole lot of time passes after that.
1: God promises, I will give you a
0: son, right? Mm-hmm. And years pass by. I will make your, obviously, I will make your people great. That's going to be, he tells them there'll be 400 years of where people you know, will be slavery and all But but God's promises to him, but the time where he promises him and the time where it comes to fulfillment, there's a huge gap of years, right? Now... The question, of course, in that context is, will God fulfill his promise? And the question is also, can Abraham, will the people of God follow God despite God's silence, despite uh, God seemingly not moving fast enough? Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes in my, and I, I know we're not in, this, in the chapter yet, uh, well, we should get to it soon. The, the expression that Naomi uh, expresses of her bitterness She's being very honest. And sometimes, you know, we look and say, "God, how come you weren't there or you you allowed certain things to happen or why do I have to go through this or why aren't you moving fast enough, God?" And here we get a picture of uh, of of the fact that she has no idea what God is doing, but she's being very honest in expressing her 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 attitude, her her grief, her her feelings. God is not slow. God is not inactive. I mean, God is very active. But he's often working in ways that you are not observant for or observant to or, or aware You're not of. Cognizant You're though. not cognizant of. And so what happens is sometimes we look for God to move uh, thunderously. And oftentimes he's working in the midst of, of, of the people he's surrounding you with, in the midst of the circumstances and you wonder, where's God? And all the while, God is moving in a way that's so beautiful. In fact, when we get to the end of the story, her expression coming up uh, uh, where she says, don't call me pleasant. And that's her name, Miami means pleasant, but call me bitter, for the Lord has dealt against me. At the end of the story, the women of the town say, the Lord has blessed you. Praise the Lord, so to speak. You know, He has turned those events around. But in there... And my my point is this, oftentimes you don't see the hand of God in a large way. God is moving things into place and people that uh, that he's moving to your life, oftentimes the answer to the question is right before your eyes. Oftentimes he says, he says, um, I have given you somebody named Ruth. I have given someone into your life that that you have you are unaware that this person is going to be a blessing to you. And oftentimes we look for um, we look for the, the 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 spotlight of God. And sometimes it's in the midst of the storm.
1: Well, He allows the light to shine through, and we have to be aware of those things. When God has promised you nothing, can you yet by faith give Him everything? Mm. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell.
0: If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth. For His Word is truth.